One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, the editor, here with your weekly serving of politics. Three quarters of ministers in this government have been appointed since the 2017 general election. In some places, whole departments have had every minister appointed since the new year. And culture. What it's trying to teach us is that when you're trying to take down a president, when you think that this person has done something terribly wrong, it takes an awfully long time. And also the bar is set incredibly high. And this week we hear from one of the biggest stars of international history, Adam Tooze, who in his new book has switched horses from the early 20th century to the last decade. Crashed is the story of the financial crisis of 2008 and it's causing the world to reconsider the story of the near total breakdown in international finance that happened just 10 years ago this September. If you have growth of the type that's as all-pervasive as the growth in the 90s and 2000s, all sorts of people start getting rich. And that, of course, enables, is the the backdrop for the the resuscitation of the Russian state as a a power actor. Now, Adam appeared in conversation with a regular prospect contributor, Duncan Weldon, here at Prospect Towers, where they were in conversation to discuss Crashed. And we'll bring you highlights of what they had to say just a little later on. But first, I'm here with Alex Dean, our politics correspondent and also Samir Rahim, who's Prospects Culture Editor. First to you, Alex. I think this week you've been having a think about how long ministers do or don't do their jobs for. It's turning out they, they often don't do them for very long. Um, I think everyone kind of knows that there are big uh, government resignations and, and these get all the headlines and all the attention. David Davis is one big example recently. Uh, Boris Johnson is another. And it's understandable that there's a lot of focus on those. But what's really interesting and what I've been talking to kind of some researchers and and think tankers, this uh, academic Gavin Freegard, who knows about this sort of thing, uh, is the churn lower down in the system and they get less headlines. You know, these are ministers, uh, famously, I think a new Labour politician called them the ministers for paperclips. Um, They're not always kind of the most glamorous jobs, but they are important. And churn at those levels kind of does have real ramifications for the kind of how well oiled a department is. Um, and they're often kind of at the coalface and pushing through legislation and so on. And it turns out the churn is really quite serious. Three quarters of ministers in this government have been appointed since the 2017 general election. Uh, And in some places, whole departments have had every minister appointed since the new year. Uh, So the Ministry of Justice is totally a new new cast, new lineup um, in in recent months. Three quarters since the election that was only, seems like, last week to me, but last year. I mean... That is staggering, isn't it? When you think it normally takes people a year to get into the swing of any job. Yeah, I think you've picked up on the crucial point there. Um, I think the really important thing is it, 
is the fact that every time uh, there's kind of a change in the cogs, a change in the government machinery, uh, it, there's kind of a learning process. The minister has to work out kind of where the kitchen is to make their tea, uh, but then a lot more serious things too. And they have to, you know, there's an adjustment for the staff lower down. Um, and, and it can really be quite a struggle if you get uh, a minister who, who doesn't kind of um, come in uh, with a running start let alone if it's every minister in the department. So I think this has real implications for good governance. And we all know there's a problem with Brexit kind of posing a big challenge. Um, but there's this kind of structural issue too, which can't be making things any easier. There's a language, of course, of uh, any of these departments to learn, isn't there, Samir? Absolutely. Um, but I was wondering whether it's very good news for Sir Humphrey, because you've got all these new ministers coming in and they have to learn the ropes and they have to be told how to uh, how to do things. I wonder whether the civil service um, becomes more influential and powerful in, in this situation where the ministers um, don't get to learn the tricks of the trade, as it were. I think that's probably absolutely right, actually. Um, I think that civil servants are kind of going to be the ones guiding the new ministers through. And, and with that comes kind of little bit cheekily, a little bit sneakily, um, kind of a bit of influence too. And um, I'm sure it won't come as a shock to our listeners that civil servants, despite being kind of often in the back rooms, can be uh, very influential indeed. But they're um, new in the job. They don't know the language. They don't know the policy terrain. Um, and they're all obsessed with something else, which is um, like Brexit, the deal the country's going to get or not get. And also the political ramifications of that is Boris up and Jacob down and all the rest of that. Yeah, there's a huge amount going on, huge amount of uncertainty swirling around. Um, and I think something that's really quite troubling is is the Brexit use of government bandwidth um, a, a, and the fact that a lot of these new ministers are in departments that have crises of their own away from the Brexit terrain. So I was talking about the Ministry of Justice earlier, which has had every every minister's new there. Um, there's a crisis in prisons. It's something we've written about in Prospect. Um, it, it's an enormous crisis. It, it, you know, whole wings are being taken over as crises break out. And that's really something where you want experienced ministers who have been in the job for a while, uh, kind of uh, coaching any new recruits through. You don't, you don't really want uh, civil servants having to completely take the reins there, I wouldn't think. Blimey. Now, Samir, you've been thinking about podcasts and things that give us a calmer, longer view on things. Is that right? Absolutely. One in particular, which is the uh, a podcast called Slow Burn, which is done by uh, Slate and presented by Leon Nafag. Um, it came out last year, the first series, and it was about Watergate. Um, but it was a bit different um, to your usual documentary that you might see on BBC Four or, or, or Radio Four. So it was eight episodes um, and each one went into quite a lot of detail about the Watergate scandal. But it presented the whole scandal as though it were unfolding almost in real time now. So it took you down the blind alleys or the things where people really thought this was the time that Nixon was going to get what he deserved and then didn't for ages and then won on election, extraordinarily. Um, it's it's an interesting um, way of presenting history. They're just doing... Um, the Clinton Lewinsky scandal now. I think they're up to episode three. And what I find so fascinating is that there were all these bubbling up early scandals which finally led to the Lewinsky investigation. Things that I vaguely heard of but didn't really know much about. Trooper Gate from nineteen ninety two where Clinton was getting um uh, uh, his his aides to procure women for him. Who exactly Vince Foster was, what exactly Whitewater was. 
So it takes you down these little um, byways of um, history. What both series show is that you really have to get people on tape to actually nail them, both in uh, the Watergate scandal and the Lewinsky scandal. It was only because, first of all, Nixon was, was heard uh, on tape that he had recorded himself uh, admitting that he knew about Watergate and was involved in the cover-up. And then Linda Tripp recorded Lewinsky saying that she'd had an affair with with Bill Clinton, that the politicians were eventually caught out. So the unspoken idea behind it is that how are we going to get Trump? And in a way, we're living through the same sort of weekly excitements and, wow, there's a Trump-Cohen tape. Uh, what does that actually mean? Or has, has Cohen flipped or have... Um, is 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 the latest person to resign from the cabinet going to be uh, the final thing that that takes down Trump? What it's trying to teach us is that when you're trying to take down a president, when you think that this person has done something terribly wrong, it takes an awfully long time, and also that the bar is set incredibly high for um, for uh, removing a president, which is really as it should be. Although. Like you make the point about the tape, of course, we've got the most appalling tape about grabbing women by the pussies and all this kind of thing from Trump in his own voice just before the election. And that didn't um, do for him, did it? No, not at all. And the, the, the parallels with 92 are quite interesting because Bill Clinton essentially admitted to, I think, having problems in his marriage. And then there was the Jennifer Flowers affair. So people knew, really, that Bill Clinton was, um, well, they knew what he was. And I think they pretty much knew what, what Trump was as well. They sort of, as it were, you know, baked it into their considerations. Did they know that Nixon was really a crook? I think I don't think they did, really. I think people trusted him. He made a lot of his lot of his own probity. And Trump, well, you know, he can't be hypocrite about, hypocrite about anything because he doesn't seem to hold himself to any standard at all. So can you imagine, Alex, any kind of, I mean, I've, don't know how closely you follow it, but any kind of smoking gun, as it were, um, equivalent to the Nixon tape coming out and doing for Trump, what would it have to be? I mean, I think impeachment is kind of a political rather than legal process, isn't it? So we'll have to see what happens in the in the November midterms, what happens with control of Congress, um, or if something in the legal domain that was kind of incontrovertible came out then then maybe more that than something that was just outrageous although certainly trump's behavior in my view is outrageous samir there's just something i wanted to return to that you were you were talking about um and that's the form of the podcast and and in many ways actually it struck me as anti-journalism in a way because whereas we kind of settle on a strict narrative plonk it right at the top and kind of follow through from there this sounded much more of a kind of diffuse slow burning kind of thing is that sound fair well exactly the title is slow burn and so but when you look at a when you have such a famous event like watergate for let's take that for example it's so difficult to look at it without thinking of the final result and if we were to write a piece uh, about it um we would try and boil the story down to a coherent narrative of course, the way the world works is it's not a coherent narrative. There's all mm. sorts of blind alleys that you go down, things that seem to be really important one week and then three months later, everyone's completely forgotten about. The podcast format, uh, because it's um, there's so many episodes and you have quite you have endless amount mm. of time, really, allows you to go into that kind of detail. One of the first most successful podcasts was one called Serial, which I'm sure you know, lots of people will remember, and that took a murder case but instead of 
um, coming to a, a conclusion about what really happened or giving you the satisfactions of, the, of a good murder story, it was all about, well, disturbing a clean narrative and trying to fit together people's stories that didn't quite fit together. It's, a, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting listen. And it's, it's definitely addictive because you can become the person who tries to fit the story together. <laughs> Do email in with any suggestions you have for um, avenues Prospect could explore in this format. Um, but now, um, let's move to our main event for this week, which, as I mentioned before, is the edited highlights of an evening uh, that we had here with Adam Tews, the Columbia historian who came to discuss his book on the financial crisis, Crashed, with our friend Duncan Weldon. We start off with Adam here talking about the extraordinary global financial system, the huge banks in it, um, and what it really means to say that a bank has become too big to fail. If you think about the governance regime that's been put in place under the Basel III, Basel IV regime, uh, and the identification of systemically important financial institutions at a global scale, just consider for a second what that means. I mean, what we have done is to single out 30 privately owned, profit-driven actors, except for the Chinese ones, which are mixed entities, but let's just focus on the Western ones, as systemically important at the global level. In other words, we have systematically conflated the pursuit of profit and the business projects of highly leveraged, profit-making, insanely remunerated private entities as significant for the management of the global economy at the global level. And that ruptures the whole series of firewalls which are supposed to divide the regulation of private activity from the public affairs of the commonwealth and the common weal. Because what it basically says is we have it, we're inescapably entangled with the well-being of these businesses. Concretely, at the level of managing those firms, what that means is ensuring they're adequately capitalized. And if you look at the American stress test to see what counts amongst the resources that they're going to deploy, it includes essentially the accumulation of pre-provisioned net revenue, which if not exactly profit in accounting terms, is a very close relation of profit, retained profit. And so what we're effectively saying is at the global level, the governance of the modern economy and the overwhelming and overriding priority of governance is going to be essentially ensuring, monitoring, cosseting the profit-making of this group of firms. Because if they earn too much, that might be a problem. If they, they might be doing very risky things. If they earn too little, that's a problem too. And that is an extraordinary transformation in the relationship that was presupposed between markets, the economy, and national government. I mean, it ruptures the alignment that you would imagine between, it doesn't so much say, you know, what's good for GM is good for America, so much just to simply say, in the interests of the whole, we need to ensure that this bank survives and remains stable. Um, so it's an, an incredible kind of shift in the, in the way in which we understand what government's about. And it, it's the perpetuation, if you like, of the, of the really dangerous and toxic politics of the bailout itself, where you say, we need to save Wall Street to save Main Street. And what we're saying now is not only that, we have to perpetually uh, uh, look to the well-being of this group of firms. 
for and, fear of them destroying the system. And the weird thing is that that is progress. That's progress on where we were in 2008 when many policymakers were blindsided Completely when these systemically blind. important firms got in yep. trouble. Yeah, I mean, if you think back, you know, if you look at, I mean, I, I just the other day was thinking about you know, Samuel Huntington's phrase, Davos man, you know, yeah. sort of the mid-2000s, you know, the, the kind of person who, you know, spends a lot of time in the lounge at JFK and um, Heathrow, flying between the two, goes to Davos, works for probably one of these large systemically mm -hmm. important institutions, and Davos man, you know, thinks they've stepped beyond the nation state, and in many ways they have. But if you go back to two or three years before the crisis, in some ways only Davos man had noticed this. National policymakers hadn't. Well, the odd thing about it is we've been saying this. This had been part of the verbiage of globalization ever since the 1970s, all the way back to the original conversation about globalization. This had been the mantra that global corporations were increasingly taking over. And that's the key point. The key point, you know, for those not red crash, is that we shouldn't be thinking about a North American banking system or a European banking system. The North there is Atlantic. A, there's a North Atlantic banking system, and that, when you're then talking about the crisis, it all becomes one crisis. It's not that we have a subprime crisis, a US yeah. crisis, and then later a European one. To just add one more you know, familiar element to this picture, it's that, I mean, most, I'm sure in America, it's just the kind of stock in trade of everyone in policy, but it's the divergence between you know, average GDP per capita and median incomes in the United States. And one continues to grow as though we were still in the old world of the 1950s and 60s in which economies grow and everyone benefits and everyone gets their slayer of the pie. And in fact, the median income has basically flatlined, especially for male workers, since the bicentenary in 17, 1976. And there's basically been no gain. So again, what you're seeing in each one of these facets of economic policy discussion is a dissociation of what in the 1950s made sense. Namely, Americans worked, lived in American communities, worked for American companies, were governed by the American government, traded as an American firm or with the wider world. Exports were produced by Americans, by a, uh, and then imports were produced by foreigners and imported to the United States. And that model has been blown apart systematically in area after area. And 08 is the moment where international macro just evaporates this, of this problem. Uh, uh, and, and that, of course is technically, you say, we make progress into this world. But what we completely lack is the political language to recapture the logic of government in that case. Because whilst you thought government was about maximizing GDP, it mapped onto citizenship, it mapped onto the welfare state, it mapped onto the tax base, it actually constituted a compact political entity which it made sense, responded in some meaningful way to democracy, the distribution of income across a national unit, was a, viable, was a viable entity in political terms. Systemically important financial institutions, it's, they're functionally crucial. It is indeed progress that we're focused on them. But what is the political discourse that bridges that? The, and there is, that's the clash we get of the politics, isn't it? That we've now got, and you make a convincing case that the global economy, not just the global financial system, you know, manufacturers through mm -hmm. supply chains, banks through cross-border financing, etc., no longer mapped these individual countries. You know, we can say, here is the United Kingdom, but we don't have our own banking system and we don't really have our own manufacturing system. They're all interconnected. But the UK state still exists. Yes. And what comes across in 2008-9 is that Davos man who has spent the last 15 years saying he has surpassed the state yeah. is then coming to the state asking for capital and asking for a bailout. Yeah. It turns out to be a period of really big government quite suddenly.
Uh, and that, the, 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 the base of legitimacy for that kind of action was, was not there. In general, it had been eviscerated by decades of politics which had actually tried to sever those connections to get us to the great moderation we didn't want a tightly legitimated political economic regime because then you'd have to deal with trade unions and other types of interest groups and that makes macro policy really difficult. But then when you have to do all this extremely unconventional policy and the recipients of that extremely unconventional policy are not ordinary citizens, but these banks indirectly their shareholders, of which of course there are, that's a wider group, but nevertheless, you have to make all these incredibly difficult arguments to justify these actions, and it becomes a, a really quite profound problem of legitimacy at that moment. I was thinking back to you know, your comments towards the end there, and some fairly chilling comments on when you're talking about Ukraine and mm. violence, you know, the use of force, and how, you know, when you're thinking about Eastern Europe, you do have to be aware that Russia is very actively in Georgia in 2008 and Ukraine subsequently used violence that mm -hmm. it was very easy in the mid-noughties, in the 90s, to think we'd move beyond that. But um, we are still in a world that is contingent. We are still in a world where military force may be used. But surely this complicates the picture in terms of the decline of the state. Because to, I mean, to misquote Stalin, how many divisions does Citigroup have? Mm -hmm. No, no, it absolutely does. So there's this sort of incredible kind of counter-movement going on from 2008 onwards, which is this dawning realisation of the depth of this integration with a whole variety of pressures which point in the other direction towards the assertion of power. And in fact, the recognition of incredibly hierarchical power in the sense that only the United States can deliver dollars. I mean, the, you know, the UK government can recapitalise HBOS and RBS, but it cannot solve their dollar liquidity problem. That actually has to come from the, you know, the very pinnacle of the global power system by way of the Fed. They will, of course, tell you it was a purely technical operation, hence that pussyfooting in the talk. It was not a bailout. It was not secret. It was a technical operation. But the Fed had in no way, you know, it had no mandate to provide trillions of dollars to European banks. It was a functional, it was a judgment, a pragmatic judgment at that moment that it was essential to, uh, to enable the stabilization of the US economy. On the question of violence, that is one way of looking at it. The, the force of the Russian example and the force of Russia's discourse at this moment is, of course, they never bought it really ever. And arguably, neither did their ex-satellites. I mean, possibly the only people who ever really, really bought it were the people in Berlin who really, really don't want to see this connection. I don't think it's true to say that Republican strategists making the end of the Cold War thought that money was detached from violence. They just thought they had the upper hand in both games and they would play both. From the point of view of Poland, the rollout of EU membership, deep integration into Western finance and NATO membership is totally non-coincidental. Mm. That's a package. The same for the Baltics. And it's historically legitimated because what, after all, was the European integration project, but a complement to the NATO project in the 1950s. It was about keeping the Russians out, the Germans down, and the Americans in. That was the project. Um, and so this sort of, you know, de, uh, the, 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 the pressing of the element of violence and coercion to the absolute boundaries, the absolute limits, is really a you know, in effect of the 1990s and the early 2000s. It's this incredibly manicured vision of the EU as this, you know, herbivorous entity that does nothing but the rule of law, human rights, and, and uh, du commerce. Um, and, and that really hits the buffers in 0708 for two reasons. A, it produces resentment, and B, the force of global growth is reshuffling the global pack. I mean, if you have growth of the type that's as all-pervasive as the growth in the 90s and the 2000s, all sorts of people start getting rich. 
uh, and that, in course, in enables is the is the backdrop for the for the resuscitation of the Russian state as a as a power actor. Um, so. You know, it's, uh, and then you add on top of that the profound instability that's revealed in 08 and the fact that a whole series of emerging markets, some of which are in geopolitical shatter zones and some of which really aren't, um, are really massively exposed. Uh, then you've really got the ingredients of, of a whole variety of different types of instabilities which manifest themselves in Hungary in one form and Ukraine in another. And so here in the discussion we come to a real clincher, which is when Duncan pushes Adam on the dollar and its role. It's been the global reserve currency, the world economy's money if you like, ever since the Second World War. It gives the US huge advantages that have sometimes been described as exorbitant privileges to print money and use that money to get the rest of the world to support its deficit. But here, Duncan wants to know whether that's always going to be the case. Perhaps, he says, the dollar might end up being replaced by another currency or even by some sort of funny money like the special drawing rights or SDRs that have sometimes been talked about as a more truly international form of money. I mean, one, I mean this is a nice lead on from the point that only the Fed at the top of the pyramid had those dollars to flood the world with. We have this macro-financial architecture mm. and we have essentially a dollar-based financial system mm. I mean do those two things have to go together can you imagine a world of these you know 30 systemically important institutions which was not quite so dollar dominated well I think that's a that's a, that's a really interesting conversation right now um, because I mean and this goes to the so when it goes to the heart of the conversation another one of these sort of conversations that go past each other in 08 09 so there's this phantom project of Bretton Woods 2, or maybe it should be Bretton Woods 3.0, because many people create credit the Chinese with having done Bretton Woods 2.0, because they stabilized their currency against the dollar and de facto created a Bretton Woods. And there is a live discussion, particularly on the left. This is seen as a progressive project. People like Joe Stiglitz, by way of the UN, saying we need a Bretton Woods, a new Bretton Woods, at which we will agree a new structure for the global currencies uh, which will be like a Bretton Woods meeting, government to government, and we'll agree to replace the dollar with the SDR. The Chinese did as a kind of spoiler move in the spring of 2009 say we ought to do another Bretton Woods and we ought to rerun it and the Keynesians ought to win this time rather than white and we should create a currency which isn't under the control of the United States. I think they were spoiling. I think this was testing the water and probing the Obama administration. It's hard to see. Maybe people have a different view. I, I find it hard to take that seriously as a proposition. Um, but it's in, certainly in that realm that this question will be decided. Uh, in so, agreed. So we've, got, um, so we've got the Fed sitting at the top of this system. How sustainable is a model which is based on you know, deals between central bankers, no exposure to popular politics or democratic legitimacy? Because you make the case, I think, convincingly, this is what, you know, we just had an awful decade for the global economy, but it could have been an Much awful worse. lot worse. Yeah. Yeah. What stopped it being worse was these quiet deals with no democratic yeah. legitimacy. So, I mean, this, I, mean I quote this person, I spoke to a you know, senior New York Fed bank, central banker and asked this question, and she said to me it was as though we had a guardian angel on Capitol Hill. You know, somebody, people knew, people didn't want to ask any further questions, were willing to accept that this was largely a technical operation that was clearly in the interests of American economy. So this is not some sinister globalist plot. There is a square rationale for it that the Fed would offer. But I agree, given the complexion of the Republican Party right now, that wouldn't necessarily carry the day. I mean, I, mean, I must admit that I have 
you know, and this will just confirm the kind of, you know, the Keynesian elitism of this book. There was a bit of me that thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't publish. Why are you doing this? This isn't necessarily helpful, right? Uh, but like, you know, maybe that's overrating the influence of the book. But should some haywire Republican read this and conclude that it's quite uh, a long book, I think. It yeah, no, exactly. I'm hoping, but but the I've had the wages of destruction got picked up by all sorts of crazy nuts. Like the the and this is why it's also important to emphasise. And to stick with the Fed line, this was not a bailout, it was not secret. That's true, and that's important. Right? No one wants cons, you should, no one new to ask. Right? So, but I obviously think that you know, the, the, the wager of this and the politics of this kind of project is to say we need to discuss this, this needs to be frank. Once we've decided on that, fine. It seems to be like one of those other areas of technical government in modernity that we will almost certainly decide does need to be unpolitical. Um, but it wouldn't be a bad idea to actually be clear about what these entanglements are and what the stakes are. That was Adam Tooze there, and you can read Duncan Weldon's review of his book, Crashed, on our website at prospectmagazine.co.uk. The September issue of Prospect is out now, and I'm pleased to say we've got more exclusive writing by Adam Tooze in that, on his story about the bank, the European Central Bank, that almost broke Europe. But we're headlining this month on Israel and Palestine and whether it's time to throw out old thinking in favour of a one-state solution. So look out for that in all good news agents. Many thanks for tuning in. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Jay Elwes. And as I mentioned, you can read Duncan's review of Adam's book and loads more on economics, culture and politics on our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk. And while you're there, I'm sure you'll notice that our subscription rates are very reasonable. So do have a look and do be sure to tune in next week to the Prospect Podcast once again. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.